I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Hi, everybody. I hope this week you'll check out We Found Time, my new online magazine, where we have essays this week by best-selling author Jill Santopolo, who wrote The, the Light We Lost. It's about her working out. V.C. Chickering. Allison Kane, Melissa Schultz, and Ashley Prentice Norton, um, who wrote The Chocolate Money, which I loved. They have written five amazing, beautiful essays, and you should go check them out at wefoundtime.com. This week's sponsor I'm really excited about is Peeled Snacks. And I've been buying Peeled Snacks for a long time, so I'm super excited they want to be a sponsor. My particular favorites are the apple gently dried fruits, but I'm also now obsessed with the salty snacks they have, particularly um, the baked pea crisps in sea salt flavor, which are delicious and amazing to have stocked now in the midst of this pandemic because they're healthy and um I don't feel guilty giving them to the kids. Uh, The fruits, too, are made with no added sugars, so that also makes me feel good since I alternate those with Fruit Loops. Anyway, Peeled Snacks is giving my listeners, that means you, a discount code of 15% off the entire purchase for just this week. And the discount code is capital Z for Zibby15. So go to Peeled Snacks, Zibby15. You get 15% off. Stuck up on some of these awesome, healthy dried fruits and salty snacks. By the way, the baked pea pea puffs, butter and sea salt are also really awesome. Um, So you'll know what I'm snacking on and we can snack together. Thanks so much to Field Snacks for being a sponsor. This is a special recording of a podcast I did with Susan Isaacs at an event at Temple Emanuel in New York City for their women's group who invited me to join and interview her. So I'll be reading her bio now and then everything else will have taken place at Temple Emanuel. So I hope you enjoy our conversation, which we did live in front of an audience. Here's her bio. Susan Isaacs is the best-selling author of 14 novels, including her latest, It Takes One to Know One. Her first novel, Compromising Positions, became a New York Times bestseller and a movie with Susan Sarandon and Raul Julia, for which Susan wrote the screenplay. She also wrote and co-produced Hello Again with Shelley Long, Gabriel Byrne, and Judith Ivey. Shining Through, her fourth novel was turned into a movie with Michael Douglas and Liam Neeson. She has reviewed books for the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, and Newsday, and has contributed op-eds, essays, and more to many other publications. She was a freelance political speechwriter and a senior editor at Seventeen Magazine. She is the recipient of the Writer for Writers Award, the Marymount Manhattan Writing Center Award, and the John Steinbeck Award. She's chairman of the board of Poets and Writers, the literary organization, also a past sponsor of this podcast, by the way, and a past president of Mystery Writers of America. Originally from Brooklyn, Susan attended Queens College. She currently lives on Long Island with her husband. Well, thanks everybody for being here. I'm going to be doing this as a live podcast for Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, so I will be releasing this episode in the coming weeks. If you care to listen or tell your kids or grandkids about it, that would be great. I'm really excited to be here with Susan Isaac, so thanks so much for doing this with me today. Delighted. Your latest book, Takes One to No One. Can you please tell everybody here what this novel is about? Ah, it is about a woman who wants normality, but also wants adventure. Corey Geller, who's the protagonist, has joined the FBI after 9-11. She's an Arabic speaker and was absolutely great at interviewing people and getting information. 
So she had a thrilling and sometimes dangerous career at the Bureau, but she was burning out. And except she met a lovely man, a federal judge, a widower, and she wound up marrying him, adopting his daughter, and moving to the suburbs. She grew up in Queens, and so it's even 15 miles east in Nassau County was culture shock. And she joins a group of freelance people who work from home just to kind of get to know people in the community. And she starts thinking that one of the men in the group is something's not right. Now, look, she, she's used to hiding her identity. She doesn't talk about having been in the Bureau. She still does some contract work for them. And she's saying there's something that he's hiding. And her best friend says, well, maybe you're just looking for a story, you know, a nice little adventure to, because you need it. It's kind of boring. And she, she suggests her friend is a lifestyle designer and thinks the answer to everything is redecoration. <laughs> um, and so it's about Corey's decision to follow up on this guy who just doesn't seem right. And she says, maybe it takes one to know one. And she enlists her dad, who is a retired and depressed former NYPD detective. And it's really the story of a search that becomes slightly dangerous, but she can handle herself. She's been trained. She also knows Krav Maga, which is the Israeli form of uh, martial arts, of self-defense that they uh, use in the IDF. But then it becomes even more dangerous. And it's a quite, really almost a question of not whether she'll live or die, but how long she'll live. And it seems hours, if not days. So does she get out of it? And what happens? And also, it's about her relationships. And also, it's a satire on suburbia, on women's relationships with women. And the best part, well, for me, the best after part was part of the book tour, which was, I'm, I'm babbling I, away. I, you're doing my job for me. This yeah. Is I'm just going to hang out. The book tour was terrific. Someone came over to me afterward, I don't know, some, somewhere Midwest, and said to me, I am so glad you're not dead. <laughs> and I, I said, well, you know what? I am, I am too. Gives me great comfort. She said, no, because then you know there's going to be another story. And I loved that, and I loved her. And so, yes, there is going to be... I'm writing the sequel now, and it's, it's great fun. And I got the New York trifecta of 
The Times, The Wall Street Journal, and Newsday all gave it fabulous reviews. So, you know, uh, it was a good feeling. So this brings me to a question I had. Phoebe, who's one of the characters in your novel, and also my daughter's name, by the way, I love says that. to Corey, the protagonist, she says, how's things in the pub biz? I read real books are making a comeback. <laughs> so I, I wondered if you think it has to do with that need for people just to hear stories and be entertained, even in the most difficult of times. Yes, I, I absolutely do. I think people need narrative. My daughter has her PhD in philosophy, and her field is aesthetics. But (laughs) she believes we're hardwired for narrative. We need a story, not necessarily once upon a time, but we need to make sense out of things, and we need to hear about other experiences. It's not only books. I love the name of your podcast. Thank you. But actually, when I was a mom, I did have, have time to read. I, I had, I'd say, a bad crime fiction addiction and <laughs> would go to the library and read three, four, five mysteries a week. And, you know, at some point you become deranged. <laughs> and uh, I said, I can do this. And that started me on my first book. But look, we all know that there's wonderful... This is the golden age of TV. And there's wonderful narrative on TV, which is very much the, the, the series and the streaming series is, reminds me very much of the era of... Dickens and Dostoevsky, when their work used to come out as as a serial. And people would wait for the next. So there's there's more. When I was reading all those, those mysteries, there's now much more competition. But people are still reading and I think are going back to books. I mean, Phoebe is... But, well, what is it? Not the brightest candle on the menorah. Um, but she, well, or the bulb on the tree in our case. But I don't know why that's true. There's a comfort in, in holding a book. And I think it's also something visual that even though you get the book jacket on the ebook, it seems when you pick up your iPad or your Kindle or whatever, that you're picking up the same book over and over. And there's a a kind of sensual pleasure in picking up a fat book, a thin book, a large one, a small one, looking at the jacket art, trying not to read the flap copy because you don't, sometimes it gives away too much, but then succumbing. There's much pleasure in that. And so they are making, and even among younger readers. I agree. I'm trying to help moms get back into that. Yeah, I feel like good. it's the easiest escape. But just open a book and you're in this whole other and, world. And it's also for moms who are so stressed out, not only by their responsibilities, but, but by their kids constantly 
moving their thumbs around and, you know, being on their devices, that you need a kind of quiet trip, a silent trip to another universe. And this certainly, books, books get you there in a way. I mean, I listened to the part of the audio of this, and it was, it was very well done, <laughs> the audio book. And there are times that it's nice to be told a story Rather, but but most of the, you know, obviously I knew the ending. So I, <laughs> but I, you know, I just have myself gone back to to the book. So let's talk about the journey of how you got here. Sure. So you're reading all this crime fiction in the library. You think to yourself, I can do this. Why not try? And right. then your first book, Compromising Positions, you wrote it when your kids were little. It was chosen for the Book of the Month Club, auctioned for paperback, sold to the movies, translated into 30 languages, and obviously became a bestseller. Right. What was that like for you and your life at that time? Well, actually, it was hugely exciting, but it was not a major change except I had a career. And I was now part of a community of writers, but when you're living as, as I was in the suburbs and your kids are in preschool or in the early, early grades and your, your friends tend to be the mothers of kids your kids' age, et cetera, you don't walk around with a marabou boa and, you know, and, and, and four-inch heels. It's a life that, that forces ordinariness on you in terms of the, your activities, in terms of what goes on in, in your head. Obviously, anything goes, and you don't have to be a writer. So it changed my life in that I had something to do every day that, that stopped at, at 3 o'clock. And then I, you know, did my mother thing. I can't say I'm a mother the way this new generation of mothers are, you know, who are just put so much thought into a Halloween costume or, <laughs> you know, or are really... And, and I, I mean, um, um, both my children now live within 10 minutes of us. They're lovely people, you know, a, a philosopher and a lawyer. They married wonderful people. Their children are great people. All, all of that said, I didn't find them riveting <laughs> constantly. So, but they seem, they seem to have survived. And, and that, that's why I think in, you know, I've, I've really covered the waterfront in, in my fiction and, you know, written about people with, with different backgrounds. But I want to say is that, you know, even when when the books start getting read in bulgarian and japanese you know it's not your relatives buying them and that there's a a universality 
about fiction, but there's also the universality that women have a life and thoughts and needs that aren't what they're supposed, quote, supposed to be, that they're far more complex, far more in need of excitement and adventure filled with curiosity and capable of great acts of courage and friendship. And that's just the woman whose kid is in your kid's third grade class. So I I enjoy doing it. I enjoy getting into another, a life other than mine. In Corey's case, she had adopted her husband's daughter and the daughter is not the stereotypical step, you know, well, initially a stepchild or, the, or even a teenager. She's, she's a nice, bright kid. And so Corey turns out to be a better person than I, but still close enough to me that I feel her thoughts. But in another book, say, Magic Hour, my narrator, my protagonist, was a Vietnam vet, Suffolk County homicide cop, recovering alcoholic, recovering heroin addict from Vietnam, and half Protestant, half Catholic. So I lived his life as well. I mean, that's the the joy of, of it. When I'm in that other universe, I leave this one and I leave myself. And it's the same thing I think for you as readers, sometimes when you have, when the phone rings or something happens, you close a book and it takes just a second for you to reorient yourself. And that, that happens to me. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> you even have a line in there with Corey again, who says, maybe I was spending too much time these days in make-believe worlds. An excess of fiction could make reality seem supremely dull with its crappy dialogue and lack of coincidences. It could lead to an unfulfilled longing for scintillation. So perhaps your feeling this way has led to all these stories. Sure. And I was also <laughs> wondering, so... Corey's, the husband she marries, his former wife, Dawn, ends up dying during a Pilates session. Yes. So she, she, comes, she comes in, she has an undiagnosed heart condition, mm-hmm. and she comes in and becomes the new stepmother and then adoptive mother to mm-hmm. the daughter. Did you, when you put yourself in all these worlds, the Vietnam vet, Corey's life, do you interview people who actually have had these things happen to them? Or do you just use your amazing Uh, empathy skills to sort of insert yourself into their lives? Do you research? How do you... Oh, I do do a lot of research. Because, number one, you don't want to make any egregious mistakes and give the wrong year for the Battle of Britain or whatever and embarrass yourself. Some of the work is easy since I write a lot of fair amount of crime fiction mysteries My husband is a criminal defense lawyer, but was in the Southern District. He was an assistant U.S. attorney and then left. He was an assistant under Bob Morgenthau when Bob was, and I know he's a member, but he was a member of this congregation. And then he came back years later as a chief of the criminal division. So he he still practices that. He knows procedure. He knows... He knows 
you know, people who have gone on to be, you know, in the Bureau, in the CIA, in various law enforcement, which makes it slightly easier. But I've, I'm a great believer in having lunch with cops or lunch with former spies or lunch with designers, whoever can, or interviews. I mean, just someone who can not only give me the facts so I, I don't embarrass myself, but give me the language, give me the sense of how they talk about it, how they view, and their, their jargon, their professional jargon. I remember going into the Suffolk County Homicide Headquarters, and they have a big sign up there, Thou Shalt Not Kill. And when I was talking to one of the cops there, I was questioning him about something he said, you know, without confronting him because he was doing me a favor by talking, but there was just a little question of ethics. And he said to me, Sue, you know, to be a good cop, you've got to have walked on both sides of the street. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, but it certainly was true for him, and he probably was a good cop. But it, was, it also became true for my protagonist, Steve Brady, in Magic Hour. He had walked on both sides of the streets and ultimately chose the right one, but the, the novel is about his coming of middle age, and so you, you do have to do your homework. Sometimes it's only a question for Red, White, and Blue, which is about, it's a saga. It's about a, a Jewish family comes over, a, a brother and a sister, and one goes, stays in New York. The other gets caught cheating in a poker game and kind of hops a train gets caught cheating on the train, and gets thrown out in Wyoming, which actually happened to a, a friend's grandfather. And so he changes his name, settles in Wyoming, and it, this is the story of their great-grandchildren who turn out to be a Wyoming FBI agent and a Jewish reporter. The, I made up the Jewish news, which I call the Junu, or she calls it the Junu. And she wants to find out and go there and find... It was about domestic terrorism. This was written right around the time of... I might have even started it before Oklahoma, the Oklahoma City bombing. But she said, why do people who don't know me who've never met a Jew in their life want me dead. And this is an investigation, but they, of course, they never find out that they're cousins. They never find out they're related because they're, you know, what happens to people in America? And I was, I was fascinated by that. My, uh, a friend of mine who was president of Queens College and then of Stony Brook, grew up in a tiny town in Texas where they were the only Jewish family. And she 
gave me a book called Pioneer Jews. And that, that became my go-to book and really inspired me. So tell me a little more about your process of writing. Every book you've written has become a bestseller, which is pretty amazing. I mean, that's like crazy. How do you do that? And do you ever get sort of racked with anxiety or oh. nerves starting a book thinking, is this going to be a bomb? Like, yes, every time. Every time. Every time. And do I get, I get and racked. How do, you get through, how, do you get, how do you push past that? With uh, difficulty and occasionally a little medication. Um, <laughs> Truthfully, but overall, well, you know, you get to a point where you know this is something I've been through before. It doesn't stop the the anxiety or the hesitation to leap in, but you know that you get past it. So that's that's reassuring. But when I did my first novel, my daughter was in preschool or as they used to call it, nursery school, for three hours a day. So I put her on the little school bus. She went off. Three hours later, she's back. You know, an alarm rang. So I had time to get downstairs and get her off, off the bus. And that was, those were my working hours. And I couldn't, I didn't, my husband was then chief in the, of the criminal division. So I couldn't, he couldn't babysit because he was working late hours. And so I bought a book, something like writing a novel, and or how to write a novel. And it says, make up a list of characters. Make up an outline of no more than four, five, six pages. And so I did. And it, it's like the Montessori method of tying a shoelace. You break it down, you break down a, a complex task into small pieces. So I can make up a list of characters' names. I can write an outline. But then as you're writing the outline, you're developing the story. You're developing the structure and bringing in more characters. So the first one, it was, you know, was a whodunit, and I had to find someone to kill. And so I was undergoing some dental work, and so I... A, a periodontist, yes. On the theory of who better deserves to die. And then the second novel was Close Relations, which was deliberately not a mystery, which was a, a novel based on my experience as a political speechwriter. And it's about, it's about politics, politics, about a New York State Democratic primary. So it's a comedy. Uh, <laughs> and it's also about sexual politics and family politics. They want her to marry a certain guy, and she doesn't want it. And so I, it's finally, it's taken me just about 40 years to come to the point where I wanted to write a series. But then I wanted to make Corey and family and, you know, people in the bureau and her, especially her mom and dad. I wanted to make them rich enough and interesting enough. And, and Corey works 
both her job and her cover is as a literary scout for contemporary Arabic fiction. So I read a lot in English about contemporary Arabic fiction. It was, you know, it's, it, all of it is wonderful because you just go into these worlds, some of which really interest me, but, but I had no idea of the, the world of Arabic mysteries, of Arabic science fiction, of, of all this genre writing and how the different cultures affect the work and the political situation affects the work. So it's been fun. Do you have any advice to aspiring writers? Sure. Well, you know, the, well, everyone always says write, but that's, that's simplistic. I think you, before you start, you know, you should feel a need to write about something. You know, something comes into your head. Then it's a job. And people don't view it as a job. They, they view it as a, an art or a craft, and they wait for the muse to perch on their shoulder and whisper to them. And it doesn't, in most cases, it doesn't work that way. What you have to do is if you already have a job, whether it's being a, a mother who stays home or an anesthesiologist or a tap dancer, you have to take on a second job, which is writing. Now, you may not do it five days a week, but you have to be a real stinker of a boss to yourself. And you have to say, I'm going to write on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, or I'm going to take every Sunday... I'm going to go from three in the afternoon till seven o'clock and write, and I'm going to write regularly, and it's going to take me longer because I'm only working, what was that, four hours? Somebody do the mech and do the (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I forgot what I said. But you have to force yourself to do that. Otherwise, it'll never happen. And if you write three chapters, you should pat yourself on the back. And that's the point that people sort of fade away. Well, thank you for doing this live podcast with me here at Temple Emanuel. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Peeled Snacks for being a sponsor of this week's episodes. Peeled Snacks, again, discount code ZIBBY15, capital Z, ZIBBY15, for 15% off your purchase for this week only. And go check out the wefoundtime.com essays. They're so good and uh, they'll make you laugh and think and feel and, and all the good things. Have a great week. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.